0: Welcome to the junior year, episode 14 of the Horror Pop class. My name is Tyler and I am the editor-in-chief of Signal Horizon, a company dedicated to Explorer. Exploring horror in and out of the classroom. When I am not managing Signal Horizon, I'm a teacher here at a local high school in Kansas City, Missouri. And tonight, like every night, I am joined by my co-host and monster ambassador here at Signal Horizon, award-winning writer, Oren Gray. Hey, how's it going? It's going, man. It's going. Back to school. Today, <laughs> we will start off by discussing what we are excited about, highlighting some free content on the internet, and conclude with an in-depth look at... Uh, The classic and probably my favorite horror movie of all time, uh, In the Mouth of Madness. So, Oren, what have you been reading or watching?
1: Well, I just got, like, literally just got back from seeing the new uh, version of The Grudge, which I regret. (laughs) All right, tell us why. Why do
0: you regret seeing it?
1: Uh, I mean, it's just... um it just was not good like it was um, i mean there's some there's so many like layers to why it wasn't that great like the ghosts were boring and they they did a a probably wise thing to replace kayako and the kid whose name i forget right now the the classic ghosts from the original yeah. with with these new ones by when they transplanted it to the states because they probably couldn't get the actors you know from the original movie but um, right. but they replaced them with the most boring ghosts like you could like litter the most generic ghosts you've seen the little girl ghost in a dozen other movies like yeah they're just the most boring ghosts and it exposits how things work over and over again it's just it's just a mess it's it's bad
0: <laughs> yeah like <clears throat> So, I saw it last night with my son, and I was a little too worried it might be, like, too scary for him or, or whatever. It was not. Um, I, no, they, found, they, I found... They
1: seem, they seem to mistake gross for scary. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, like, you can't outgross a 12-year-old, you know? Right. Like, it, it has some genuinely pretty decent, like, jump scares, but that is... I, I, on Twitter, I think I said it is overly complex because it tries to tell like the story over three or four different time periods right and because of the way the movie i think is edited some of those get confusing when they happen you know so right.
1: um, one of them again maybe i was supposed to make an petition doesn't make sense when it happened which they kind of hand wave by saying that time passes differently inside the house yeah um yeah. but yeah there's there's at least one sequence that like months should have passed but only like a day did yeah
0: right exactly and i you know jack was like i don't get that and i was like i clearly but at the same time like it is simple in doing what it's trying to do which is essentially like you know uh people get haunted by this house that has a grudge you know right. but in that simplicity of sort storytelling, like it has nothing to bring new to the table, except this right. kind of, I don't, know, a retelling of what I think I I enjoyed the the first American remake. So yeah,
1: it, the first American remake is great because it's just the original again. It's it's the same director and everything. I mean,
0: yeah, in in this particular instance, it do, it makes some choices that are just mean for the sake of being mean. And again, I like <laughs> I don't mind a horror movie being. Being mean, you know, making that effort, but it's right. got to be towards an end, and and this just feels pretty nihilistic. I don't know. Yeah,
1: and it's not. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'm sure I'm, I'm gonna write it up, so I'm sure I'll get more into it. But like, it's not the part of the part of the great thing about both the Grudge and and the Ring and some of the other movies that came out around them is that uh, they they have this kind of very elegant nihilism where. The haunting can never stop, right? Nothing can ever stop the haunting. It will just keep growing forever. Um and the way they're structured, it makes the viewer kind of complicit in this yeah, yeah. in this nihilism. And this movie just doesn't. It doesn't do that at all. It's just like, no, nah, everything's just like bad things happen to people, a lot of bad things happen. It doesn't it doesn't have that kind of lulling you into this very elegant web of haunting that's going to keep going forever and ever and ever it's just uh a bunch of bad stuff happens yeah it doesn't, yeah. It doesn't have any weight to it.
0: it it has zero weight to it, it and it's pretty <clears> remarkable <throat> then that it, a movie that has such low emotional stakes can still come across mean <laughs> you know like
1: right yeah uh, exactly we
0: don't give a shit about anybody in this movie but it you don't have to to like take a step back and be like god damn that was that was just mean you know that didn't serve a purpose so yeah man uh i saw it it was a thing uh i would skip it you know i don't i don't don't think there is anything significant that this will bring to uh a viewing experience other than as i think uh you said it uh, off mic before we started recording it sets an incredibly low bar for the rest of 2020 yeah
1: (laughs) i'm off to a good low start Right, it's last, it's last year. It was polar. This year, it's this. Got a I, nice low bar in January.
0: Uh huh. Like <laughs> that. That may be a time to put a movie out. You know, like uh, after this. But you know what? That's just uh, our opinion. If you went out and enjoyed this, uh, you know, this that's totally fine. Uh, if you have a reading of this movie that presents it as one of your favorites for the year, maybe we would quibble with that later in the year. But uh, good for you.
1: Hopefully, uh, yeah. No, more power to you yeah
0: bring that open mind to the to the rest of the films that you'll see this year well um i will mention uh a couple of other quick things that i'm uh watching number one the stuff is on uh shutter and uh, i revisited that for the first time in maybe a decade and oh man is it's so much fun it's so much fun and like the rest of the family kind of came in at the end of the film like what are you watching? And uh, I think they even got a kick out of it because it is it is just
1: uh, I don't that know movie, man. The movie's great. I love that movie. I have it on Blu-ray.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it, it's great because we have maintained over the last I think three episodes that you know the intersection of horror and politics is really pretty clear, and it, it can be no clearer than it is in <laughs> this particular movie. You know.
1: Totally. Totally. Yeah. The,
0: this big corporation that has you know like uh slash i it didn't really invent it did it like i don't well, they, know No,
1: they, they found it right they found that coming up out of the ground
0: yeah and it just it happened to be this this uh you know uh i don't know this entity right that uh became self-replicated so yeah, yeah i don't know it was a, a ton of fun i
1: love the, that movie it's it's one of my favorites larry cohen Larry is a great director, and it's the best movie about Killer Yogurt you'll ever see.
0: Ever. Ever. (laughs) I I feel very confident making that statement. Uh, The only other thing that I've been watching is uh, the movies that made us on Netflix, which is, I think it's just like four episodes long, and they are real light documentaries about the making of movies that, like, I don't know, pretty much universally everybody likes, right? The first episode is Dirty Dancing, which... You know, uh, I think it is a classic. My wife and I watched that, and it was fun. And then they do Die Hard and Home Alone and Ghostbusters. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just fun. It was a great, like, holiday watch, you know, because it makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And <laughs> I, I think we have a, a, a lot of writers that uh, listen to us here in the horror class. And what was so remarkable about it all uh, about it all, my wife turned to me at the end of the last episode, and she said, you know what is amazing? The through line to all of this is each one of these scripts is written and rewritten and changed and morphed over time, you know? So it is neat to watch that evolution. And as a mm-hmm. writer, you know, it's cool to watch, um, you know, these remarkable stories that we really, really love didn't all start out that way, you know? It's oh, like. Yeah revision 400 and then, like, (laughs) reboot 27 that they finally (laughs) found the magic potion. You know, the the magic combination, if you will. So. Anything else uh, you were checking out uh, over the last week or two?
1: Um, I'm not not top my head. Cool.
0: All right. Then we'll move uh, quickly along to this uh, week's Dark Corner of the Web and... It comes from our own journal of Black Ivy, it dropped just a few days ago. Eddie Generous, who is the uh, editor in chief of Unnerving Magazine, has this month's entry, and it's called "The Change Room." And if last month's entry was like the Atour, right? It was like the Lighthouse. It's really well crafted. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of this traditional uh, ghost story, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is more like your it's not schlocky I don't like that term but it's way more I think fun and a perfect like beginning of the year tale about like why going to the gym is just a really terrible idea (laughs) so (laughs) we'll put we'll put a link to it uh but check out journal of black ivy and then if you like that stuff head on over to our patreon page because that's how we're able to pay authors and hopefully eventually pay some of the staff writers here at signal horizon so that uh you can contribute to the art that you enjoy so uh, we'll put a link to both of those on uh the internet in our show notes so before we move on with our essential question today uh, a couple of pieces of housekeeping really just one of them panic fest is coming up so we won't have a weird Wednesday screening that we're normally hosting uh, because we're going to be at panic fest and you should be too Yeah, it's going to be uh, an absolute blast. But before we get there, Deep Cuts Horror Trivia is hosting uh, Kids on Bikes edition, January 17th at 7 p.m. at the Big Rip. Just like we normally uh, do at the Big Rip, we will have questions to start at 7, a great big prize pack full of all kinds of really nifty prizes. And uh, it's all going to be about Amblin movies, or Amblin-ish movies. amblin likes, so. yes. Yes, uh, Amblin-adjacent, ad- if you will. <laughs> all right. So, let's move quickly on to tonight's essential question, which is, what can In the Mouth of Madness teach us about the Tome of Eldritch trope?
1: Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without
0: a trace. Isn't the guy that writes horror books.
1: You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a setup. I just have to work out how it's set up.
0: Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. <laughs>
1: It's a map. This whole thing has been stated. You just get out. This
0: is not reality. It's all happening for real, trend. Okay, so before we kind of pick apart the trope and pick apart the movie itself, why don't we get a brief summary from Rotten Tomatoes? Because
1: they you, do you, such
0: a tremendous job of
1: it. You, you always say these are brief, and they are the least brief summaries I have ever seen.
0: Yeah, this one's like uh, 14... Uh, <laughs> sentences long, so maybe I'll skip ahead if it looks boring. But um, John Trent, an insurance investigator, has gone off the deep end. The film opens with he and a psychiatrist in a padded cell. There, the demented Trent tries to tell a story of violence and confusion. The shrink recognizes that his story is by no means unique for such events are happening everywhere. Trent believes that the cause of the chaos lies with the writings of author Sutter Kane who recently has disappeared Trent was hired by the writer's publisher to find him and this leads him to his conclusion that Kane was somehow behind it all Trent was assisted by Linda Styles, Kane's editor and together they go to find Hobbes End the fictional location of Kane's tales they find it in New England <laughs> what was even stranger is that all the terrifying events mentioned in Kane's books came to pass in this innocuous village and that's all I got
1: and
0: uh, I think that's all we really need. Um, yeah,
1: that's probably, my, again, I, their, 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 their summaries always are hilarious to me.
0: Yeah, well, and this one uh, doesn't even have the right tense through some of it. So, hey, whatever. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good, man. It's all good. Uh, yeah. all uh, So, where does this movie fit within your kind of uh, list of maybe all-time favorites or, you know... What what is your relationship to this movie?
1: I mean, I loved it when I was younger, like when I first saw it. Um, And, I mean, I still love it, but I I love most John Carpenter movies. So, it's not one of my favorites of the John Carpenter movies. Like, of the movies that make up his apocalypse trilogy, um, which is The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and this. This is probably my least favorite of those three. Um, But, I mean... Like, I still love it, and, uh, I know, like, for me, it was a big deal when I got it on Blu-ray, because I could finally pause that scene where he's running away from all the monsters down the big hallway and, like, see mm-hmm. all the monsters, because oh, I, yeah. I was obsessed with that scene when I was younger. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. When I, when I couldn't, like, get a clear screen cap of it.
0: I don't know if I've ever done that. What, uh, what, uh, what's it
1: like? They're pretty great looking. I've, it's, uh, up on my Instagram, I'll, um. I took a picture of it when cool. I when I when I got the Blu-ray, so I'll, I'll send it to you or something.
0: Yeah, I love that. We'll stick it in the um, uh, show notes.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty great. Like they built just a pile of monsters for like that one scene that you see for like a few flashes with a strobe light. Yeah, they, they, they built like twelve of these big like practical effects monsters. It's ridiculous.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean this movie's creature work. You know, what it does with those, obviously, but then also what it does with, uh, you know, like the little boy on the bike and Mm -hmm. a couple of the other set pieces are just fantastic.
1: And Also, like, one one interesting thing about this one to me, um, like, looking at it in in terms of both, like, Carpenter's oeuvre, but also... um, specifically that the Apocalypse Trilogy because it was made way after the others in the Apocalypse Trilogy. There's a pretty big gap right, in time and it's um, so like this one, the special effects are all by like Greg Nicotero and um, Robert Kurtzman the, so they all, like the movie looks like a big budget Masters of Horror episode right? Because they're the same people who made Masters of Horror. Sure. So all the, all the special effects in that look kind of the same because it's got the same effects team for the most part. And so, like, watching it, the effects look really different in it from, like, the thing. Um, even though they're all practical effects, but, like, you can really see the, the different effects people who are working on them. Like, And I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, just seeing, like, how how different they look from one movie to the next kind of a thing.
0: Yeah. And uh, I didn't know Nicotero did the work on this. And it is, uh, I mean... It, it, now that you've mentioned that, you can see a lot of his signature in a lot of that stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to pull things full circle, you, you mentioned uh, the Apocalypse Trilogy, and you have a really fantastic piece up about that, right?
1: Uh, I mean, I have a piece up about it anyway.
0: It is good. Stop. Give yourself some credit.
1: <laughs> it, it's it certainly, it's probably like my most read piece. It gets a lot of. of... I don't know whatever the internet equivalent of airtime is. It gets shared a lot and okay. stuff. Like I, I still get things about it every now and then. Um, all this decade later, because uh, I wrote it back in 2011, so it's a long time ago. Yeah, you can still um, read it
0: though. We'll, we'll include yeah. uh, the link to it here. But uh, what what was essentially your thesis?
1: I mean, essentially, it was just that. Um, and other people have talked about this certainly, but I don't think it's ever. I, I haven't read another essay that was you know specifically focused on this, which is that you know the the thing that ties the apocalypse trilogy together is that they're all three cosmic horror films essentially. Sure. Um, made back before, not before Lovecraft was. I mean, Lovecraft was a known entity for for a long time, but but back before like we talked a lot about cosmic horror in films and things like that, there were, there was not. There was not the discussion about it in films back then that there is now, and so Carpenter doing it was kind of a big deal then. Sure. Um, well, and so it's mostly just about that, like defining cosmic horror and explaining how it how it you know how it plays into each of the three films and how they play into one another and that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, it is it is a great article because those of us that are not super familiar with, um cosmic core, right? Uh I think we are because we we kind of traffic in all of that, but your average, you know, normal consumer may not, and it gives mm-hmm. you I think a pretty good uh primer, right, for for all of that. So, I think you can see a lot of the through lines like I uh, I was rewatching some scenes right before we started here and The crab walk, right, that we see Mm -hmm. in in The Mouth of Madness feels so similar to a couple of the scenes in The Thing that, like, that is, uh, you know, some shared space and also hints at one of the keys of of this movie, which is how deeply, deeply unsettling it is uh, in, in moments where it leans into all of that. Does that make any kind of sense?
1: I think so, yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, I, I think maybe that whole um, unsettling, that whole, like, just uh, putting things slightly on edge, right, it may mm-hmm. be one of the keys of Cosmic Core, right? Like, it's right. just, it, it is similar to uh, what we see, but not quite, right? Kind of that uncanny right. valley that we, we have talked yeah. about.
1: I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a line in it in... in in the mouth of madness that, that really kind of is a, a really good sort of, I don't know, summation of cosmic horror to some extent, which is, um, which is the, the line that, that styles has about, um, you know, right now reality shares your point of view. Uh, you know, what scares me is what would happen if reality shared Kane's point of view or whatever, yeah. like that, that it's, it's changing of reality that is kind of at play rather than, Rather than, like, an intrusion into reality, which is what you normally get with a supernatural horror, right? Normal supernatural horror is reality works the way we think it does, but there's this intrusion into it that doesn't. Like, there's a vampire or there's a ghost or something that works the way it shouldn't. Yeah. But cosmic horror, cosmic horror typically isn't an intrusion. It's the revelation that reality never worked the way we thought it did.
0: Ooh, yeah. And I think <laughs> that, right? Like... Right. The, the, that feeling that maybe from the beginning you haven't gotten it, you know? Not just because, yeah, like it's scary if you wake up one day and things are different, right? Like that's, that's fear and it's fear that we can appreciate and it is what it is, you know? Mm -hmm. But the idea that you could wake up one day and realize that not just that you're not getting it now, right? But that, You've right. never really gotten it.
1: You know, like, yeah. Eh. yeah, you were, you were always wrong. Yeah. You've always been wrong. Everything you knew was wrong.
0: Yes. And <laughs> I think that is really important uh, in discussing one of the concepts that I wanted to hit on today. Which is by a a postmodern philosopher, a guy that I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, a guy named uh, Michel Foucault, who was a big uh, Mm -hmm. philosopher in the 60s, 70s, and uh, to a lesser degree in the 80s. But probably uh, one of his most famous books is a book called Madness and Civilization. And his argument is that the state of, of reality is always defined by the people in power. And if you have power, then your reality will never shift. But mm-hmm. if you don't have power, then the reality of your situation is constantly in flux. And uh, as a result, uh, the, the powers that be keep you powerless. If you can't shape right. your reality, if they call you... Essentially, Foucault's argument is mm-hmm. the same argument that like David Chappelle made. So it, it's a funny comparison to make, but... You know, Dave Chappelle had, like, the most popular show on uh, Comedy Central for a long, 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 long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, they made this new contract, and then suddenly, for whatever reason, he left the show and ended up uh, spending some time in Africa – reconnecting, I think, with some of his roots and, and doing some other stuff and just walked away from the show, right? And mm-hmm. then, of all places, he did this interview on Inside the Actor Studio. Like, <laughs> that really stuffy show with, like... And right. he was so fucking great through it and smoked through the whole thing, which was super cool. Uh, also, at the time, I was a big smoker, so I was like, yeah, you do that, Dave. Uh, but the big argument that he makes to the host there is they all called me crazy, Because I did this, right? Because I created Mm -hmm. this thing, and then somebody tried to take it away from me, and I left, right? Because it's my thing, and I don't want to do it anymore. And he said, be really uh, careful what you label crazy, because then you de-justify the arguments that they're trying to make, right? And Michel Foucault makes the same argument, which is, if somebody that doesn't have power suddenly says that something is crazy or is not right or is whatever... Uh, then the power structure will house them in a like for real in, in an insane asylum that often like they use the guise of a mental institution or the guise mm-hmm. of a prison right right uh, as a means of locking up political opponents and I don't know i just the imagery in this movie reflects exactly that you know
1: mm-hmm. and
0: yeah that conversation that you uh you know that you hit on that that uh, that line from the film, I think, is perfect, you know? Like, r- what if it doesn't align with your reality anymore? Well, then we're all totally fucked, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I dig that. <coughs> so uh, one, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about was kind of a history of, like, haunted books or evil books and maybe mm-hmm. the relationship that history has with this film. Do you think this is a film about an evil book, per se?
1: Um, I mean I'd, on the in the most basic sense I suppose it is, but like the interesting thing I think about this film and its relationship to this topic, which may be jumping over the history part, but um so like we tend to when evil books show up in things, they tend to get super simplified, right? They tend to get boiled down to like if you read it out loud it's bad. Like it's an incantation that has actual power, it's a spell. Right? Yeah. Like a magic spell like in D and D. But when you go back to most of the root stuff um, that, you know, uh, King Yellow, the and that kind of stuff, that's not how it usually works. It's that the knowledge contained in the book is so dangerous that once you have that knowledge in you, you can't get rid of it. Like, it's the knowledge, not the book. The book itself is just where the knowledge is kept, but it's the information in the book that's the problem. And that is definitely true in, in in the mouth of madness. Like, it's not it's not actually the books that are the problem. It's it's the it's the worldview the, the books espouse essentially that people believe this, and it makes it easier for reality to break down.
0: Yeah, I I think that is an important distinction. And as I was like going back over and preparing for today, like. I had difficulty situating this movie as like an evil book movie in that a lot of the other films and uh, like a few others that I kind of put on this list of like uh, evil books. Right. There's the Necronomicon. There's the Bible of Amet, uh Novum Portis and uh, The King in Yellow, you know, a few of these other books. Mm-hmm. They, there may be some allusion to their history, right? Like written by the right. devil or whatever, but they almost exist out of time and out of author, right? Like it's difficult to place them uh, as like I don't know by this guy. But this this movie, right, and the mm-hmm. the name of the novel, right, in the mouth of madness, uh, is written by Sutter Kane, and Sutter Kane is this entity, right? He's the thing that we actually meet at some point. So mm-hmm. I was like, is it about an evil book or is it about an evil guy? And then uh, the, the question, I don't know if I necessarily have an answer to, and maybe you can speak to it a little bit, is like, do we ever get an explanation for exactly who Sutter Kane is and his role in creating this alternate reality or alternate universe?
1: I mean, we never get one from a entirely reliable narrator because there's not really an entirely reliable narrator anywhere in the movie. But um fair enough. I mean, he he when he shows up makes the claim that the, the reality existed already and was just talking to him essentially. He was like the prophets who wrote the Bible. Okay. He was he was Yeah. He was channeling what they told him to write, basically. Um, which is which is similar to The Origins of the Necronomicon, if memory serves. Um that it was this reality that was right. there. The, yeah, the Ab- Abdul Al has wrote it, but he wrote it kind of at the prompting of these like outer voices and things. But yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, again, not to derail. So, if you wanted to go further with that, no, but, you're um, good. Uh, so, to me, the the sort of the the easiest way to understand, to I don't know, maybe to contextualize uh, in the mouth of madness is with. Um, another john carpenter short not a full-length film but his first Master of horror episode cigarette burns which is about a, a an evil movie essentially it, it's it's about a a film that causes people who watch it to go insane and things like that and it's it's basically the same it's a similar premise to this except with a movie instead of a book or instead of several books as the case may be and also a movie yeah um, <laughs> and and they both they both touch on some really similar themes and so i think that watching them together can really kind of since carpenter made both of them can kind of speak to what he was trying to do with each one yeah um, the the
0: the idea that art creates this uh, i don't it, it, it can invoke this particular Uh, feeling or sense of sanity, I think, or insanity, as the case may be, uh, shows up a lot. And I think it's interesting to watch Carpenter play with uh, that form, you know? Mm Because it's definitely fundamentally uh, different art forms, but they evoke kind of the same response, if that makes sense. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and it all... It all... Ties back to the um, the motif of harmful sensation. It's not, and these are these are kind of bigger scope than the normal uh, harmful sensation. But um, for those who are unfamiliar, the motif of harmful sensation is a sort of uh, a trope, I guess you'd call it, of you know the thing that you experience it and it can hurt you in some way. Um, so there's there's a real life example of a song that's supposedly so sad that it causes people to commit suicide. Right. Um, I don't remember the name of the song, but it's uh, something Sunday, I think. Anyway, okay. Um, but you know, don't but, go but listen to. Prob- it. <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, probably the most famous recent film example is The Ring. Uh, of you know, you watch the videotape and then you die, right? Unless you do these certain things. And like, this is you know, similar stuff where you have these these books, and and once you experience them, you can't unexperience them, um, and and they change you in some fundamental way. Which I mean, as People who are creating art—that's kind of what you're always wanting to do to people, right? Is to change them sure. in some fundamental way, to show them something they couldn't otherwise see. Okay. Um, and so the the sort of uh, the cursed book, the cursed movie, the cursed painting, the cursed whatever song, is is sort of the the that turned to eleven, you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and in, in I think that there is in. You know, we're, we're kind of having a, a conversation about art and artists, which uh, I didn't necessarily plan on, but I think it's actually uh, pretty germane and pretty interesting. Like, I think our assumption is that the artist is, uh, like, at its absolute worst, is benign, right? Like, it, right. It, you know, is is just a thing trying to, uh, you know, show maybe a bit of his or her world or you know whatever it may be, but like. What if you had that power, right, and you're an artist, but you're a chaotic evil, right? Like, what if if that is not your plan at all, that you want people to be fundamentally changed in a terrible and awful way? And I think that is what is really... Interesting about movies like in the mouth of madness. Although I think in the in the mouth of madness takes it even a step further and is like like what if it shifts your reality so that you don't know what good and bad is, or that your right. traditional concept of the, of those are proven false. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was gonna say uh, like uh, m- maybe that you know the, maybe they are a, a person who wants to change you in some way that that is bad, or maybe they're a person who thinks that it's good for you to be a way that you think is bad oh yeah yeah like you know they 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 have the best intentions but you don't agree with those intentions you know it's it's yeah there's a lot of of room there for interpretation and of course you know by the end of in the mouth of madness there's a the fundamental question of was any of it ever real the way we thought it was before or was it always all a book
0: yeah right. did
1: anything actually change or did we just get to watch a character get put through the ringer, right? <laughs> Essentially.
0: Yeah. Well, and th- there are a couple of key scenes that I think fit really well with what we are saying because it's it's that so that scene in uh, the movie theater, right, mm-hmm. where he's watching it all play out, and and I think mm-hmm. at, at one point in time he's got this huge like smile on his face, right, um, right. It reminded me of, and I think Sam Neill is really going for it at the end of this movie, of uh, f- like he's almost embracing it or he's almost – and so I think it reflects the idea of the sublime. And I know mm-hmm. we have talked about that before. We talked about it with uh, Nadia Bolkin, um, specifically about A Dark Song and a couple of other things. But like, I like I feel like he is channeling that – really well. And before I go further, I will say, if you want more reading on The Sublime and In the Mouth of Madness, there's a great little essay in uh, Vague Visages um, that I will link to here. And uh, it's, I think, pretty fantastic and and discusses that. But did you get any of The Sublime um, in this film?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean... um, Like, I think... I mean I think part of what you get as the, as the sort of as things unspool near the end is that there's a there's a freedom to not hanging on
0: anymore. Oh, I like that. Okay.
1: You know, um like and part part of it that is like Sam Neill does a great job. His his character is so I don't want to say tightly wound because that's not quite right but he's so he's so sure of himself he's so he feels like he has such a good hold on everything at the beginning okay and like he he, he, he's a freelancer because he wants to be because he doesn't want anyone to tell him what to do he's very convinced that all of his decisions are his decisions that he knows how people think and why they do what they do that he can read people and figure them out and spot cons and all this stuff and that that that's presented because he's presenting it as being very, you know, positive. But feeling like you're in control that much would be exhausting, right? You'd have to hold on all the time. And by the end, he's lost everything. You know, he, he's lost his concept of reality. He's lost his sense of self. He's now a character in someone else's story. He's no longer responsible for his own decisions. And there's this kind of there's this moment of kind of both freeing and also losing everything that that you get in that theater where he's like he's laughing and crying at the same time
0: yeah he's definitely like he's yeah yeah
1: he's like he's letting go of everything but also he's letting go because he has no choice
0: <laughs> yeah and i think uh combining it with that concept of the sublime right like overly religious folks, and I don't mean overly religious, but folks that are that are religious, right, and, and fervent in their religiosity, uh, mm-hmm. will often say, like, oh, you know, like, give that problem over to God, or, you know, like, whatever, right? And, and yeah. essentially absolve themselves of, uh, you know, control and power for those particular things. And I think they find solace in that. And that is not entirely unlike what uh, what our main character is going through here. And there are moments of this film where you really get a sense that he's in, enjoying it, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I think some of that may be hinting at that idea that his old job was nothing but holding on to that power. Right. And he right. doesn't have to do that anymore. So I love that scene because I think it kind of triggers this, uh, the, the, the idea of the sublime, But I also, you know, we just screened Dark City and we had a great crowd for that. And (laughs) it is, I don't know, it is one of those films that I have seen like a hundred times. And I have no doubt I will watch another hundred. But there's that great scene at the end of the film, not to really spoil it. We won't go deep into spoilers there. But there is the scene at the end of the film where he has... Um. Oh shoot! I'm blinking on the the town, Uh, the the city he's trying to get to on the coast. Shell Beach, Shell Beach, Beach. right? And and it's an advertisement for Shell Beach, and he pulls the advertisement right, a a strip of the advertisement. It's just a brick wall, right? And Mm -hmm. he's like, oh, you know, this is it. It reminds me of, or maybe vice versa, where he pulls the advertisement for "In the Mouth of Madness," and underneath it, right, is his
1: his face. yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, and it's this, uh, I, I, I love the idea that we're playing with advertisement. We're also talking about kind of the meta level of um, the movie, but also the meta level of the storytelling too, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I wonder what kind of role, or if intentionally John Carpenter is trying to make an argument about advertisements generally or like because it certainly looks like a movie billboard and i don't know i, I just it seemed really interesting and a really mm. specific choice you know
1: yeah I, and definitely like first of all the, the cover arts they get for the the art they get for the posters and the book covers is delightful i don't know who did it. i don't remember i knew it one time but it's great yeah i agree um but uh the like there's definitely a lot of it's put to use a lot if not just that scene but also like he cuts up the covers to make the map that he uses to find Hobbs End Um, and, and there's definitely a lot of, of play with like with the covers and the artwork and the advertising and all that stuff and I, I don't really know what it means but there definitely is a lot of a lot of stuff going on with it in the movie yeah and um,
0: the, the at, visual storytelling is so powerful in that you yeah. know
1: one of my favorite bits of kind of odd meta narrative, and I'm not sure what to make of it or what it means, like, intertextually or whatever, um, is that when you see the marquee, like, for the for the movie, you know, you see, you see the marquee for In the Mouth of Madness when he goes in to watch the movie. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's directed by John Carpenter, like the movie is, but it's starring John Trent, the character's name. Oh. Which is interesting like that that both he is the he is both the character and apparently the actor in this movie like Huh. it was an interesting touch and i don't really know what to make of it like but it's it's always there and i always kind of think about it a little bit yeah don't really know what to, don't have to do with it but i think it's interesting yeah
0: i you know i wonder <laughs> how different a reading may be if it was like starring sam neill you know like now right. it becomes yeah. this like mirror within a mirror within a mirror within a mirror maybe it's just a it's a way to uh close the circle right uh mm-hmm. or you know not have a ouroboros or whatever that thing is called yeah i, I think that's interesting okay so returning back to that essential uh, central question that we had about the uh tomb tome of Eldridge lore right which is a trope that we see over and over and over again from a Lovecraftian perspective. And I thought, particularly with your work with Big Capital Weird Stuff, right? (laughs) What influence do you think that you see from like an Eldritch-style Lovecraftian tale here, right? Because I think it does borrow some uh, from it, but definitely diverges from a traditional uh, Lovecraftian model in a couple of different ways. But uh, you know, is there anything specifically that you see uh, that you could be like that is that is Lovecraft, and we can see Carpenter using Lovecraft in this way?
1: I mean, so the most the most sort of <sighs> rudimentary answer is that when you hear them read from uh, from Sutter Kane's books. A couple of times, they use text from Lovecraft stories. Hmm. Um. Not not every time, because some of them have to be details that are in the movie, right? Like so the you know the the Black Church or whatever. But um. But yeah, there's bits of actual Lovecraft stories in there. I don't remember where exactly. Um. And I think some of the stuff when you see the pages, when the when the portal tears open and you see the pages on the other side. Okay. Yeah. I think I think some of those are Lovecraft text too, if memory serves. I did I did all the legwork for this at one time and now I can't remember exactly where they are, but there is some actual Lovecraft stories. Okay. Text from them sentences here and there in the movie. Um, but beyond that, like the the most general idea of like to to an extent that the, the movie even sort of trades in the notion that you're already familiar with it of of, you know, there's these these ancient uh, you know, slimy things out there in the dark, yeah waiting really to come to come back in.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and like the way that Sutter Kane talks, especially, but some of the other characters too, but especially him when he's talking, um, the way they talk about it is is in these terms so familiar that they assume that the audience has already already heard stories like this. Yeah. Right. It's yeah.
0: Like well at least have they, a they point assume, of commonality.
1: Sure. <laughs> right. They assume a certain familiarity with with this kind of material, um, which I think you know uh, is 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 kind of assuming that everybody at least kind of knows the basics of Lovecraft um, or that kind of story. So I mean, there's there's certainly there's certainly those elements. It's it's definitely the one of uh, Carpenter's films that you know borrows the most directly from Lovecraft, even while it's its own story.
0: And the mouth of madness. Here's to deliver Trent.
1: What? I'll be joining my new publishers now.
0: You take the manuscript back to the world from me. That's what you do.
1: What I do? You are what I write. Like this town. It wasn't here before I wrote it. And neither were you. No.
0: I know what's real. I know what I am. And nobody
1: pulls my strings. Did you think my agent attacked you by accident? He read about you in there.
0: He knew you'd bring it back and start the change, make what's happened here happen everywhere. Try tried to stop you.
1: I'm not a piece of fiction. I think therefore you
0: are. Read it if you don't believe me.
1: See what I have in store for you. Know what I am.
0: Go back. Your world lies beyond that passage.
1: Stared into the illimitable gulf of the unknown the Stygian world yawning blackly beyond. Trent's eyes refused to close. He did not shriek, but the hideous, unholy abominations shrieked for him, as in the same second he saw them spill and tumble upward out of an enormous carrion black pit, choked with the gleaming white bones of countless unhallowed centuries he began to back away from the rip as the army of unspeakable figures yeah and
0: like i there clearly is an homage to stephen king here right like i mean other than the initials being the same but like they both utilize you know new england and small new england towns that are supposed to be quaint but really have Dirty underbellies, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it is important to acknowledge then too that, like, you know, uh, it right? It volume two came out last year, and it was uh, mm-hmm. this big, huge uh, phenomenon. But I like Stephen King, like, like Sutter Kane, at least in this context, dabbles in cosmic horror, right? And this is, oh, yeah, uh, you know, I think, I think this is Carpenter's way of saying like the the roots of what makes Stephen King really terrifying are are when he can connect it to that larger sense of cosmic dread. Does that make any kind of right. sense?
1: Yeah. I mean Sutter Kane is basically like, what if what if Lovecraft was as popular as Stephen King? Yeah. Like, and the one of the interesting things about the the whole Hobbs end and the and the the fake New England town that's actually a real town and all that stuff is that, you know, Stephen King famously does that with, with you know his interconnected stories that take place in these fictional towns in Maine. But Lovecraft did it too. Like, Stephen King borrows it from Lovecraft. Lovecraft has his set of fictional towns that all of his stories take place in, in the same part of New England. And King, I mean, I, King would acknowledge that he borrowed that, like that he has said in interviews that, I mean, you know, that he was inspired by Lovecraft, blah, blah. Um, and so there's this really strong through line that runs from Lovecraft directly to King to in the mouth of madness like of this sort of fictional New England town yeah
0: which I gotta tell um, you I, which I have not visited uh a ton of small New England towns uh I really want to now and I know at least at <laughs> least some of it comes from that you know what what it, uh, I mean it's 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 almost its own trope now right
1: yeah oh it totally is and like I know that, you know, my my brief trips to New England, which have mostly not been to small towns, um, there is a real just immediate sense of how much older everything is there than here where, you know, we live in Kansas City. Um, I mean, and we have history here running back to the Civil War, but but it's in these sporadic places, right? right. There, like, when I was in Providence, like every third building had this plaque. Of how it was from like seventeen seventy six or whatever, you know, it was it was everywhere, and there was just this immediate there was this immediacy to the age of the place that we just don't have here, um, in the same way. Anyway,
0: yeah, and, and all of that, right? Like I can remember, like I've been to Boston, right? And you see, like, mm-hmm. and then I think if you take that trip, then you you kind of tour all of the the or at least we did, kind of all of the early Americana, right?
1: hmm hmm
0: But I've had the privilege, of, I've gotten to travel to, like, Germany, right? Uh, and in Munich, they have this gigantic, uh, essentially, like, cuckoo clock, right, that stands at mm-hmm. the town center called the Glockenspiel, right? And I remember some of the buddies that I met over there were talking to me about the history of the Glockenspiel, right? And it's like the Glockenspiel predates all of America by like 500 years or something of like totally absurd. Right. So yeah, even conceptions of our own history change, you know, when held up to, uh, you know, different ideas. So,
1: Yeah. 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 It's, I think it's why, I think it's why the sort of like antiquarian, uh, the antiquarian ghost story, you know, tradition that Lovecraft was honestly kind of a part of, um, you know, why it begins back in, in England and Europe is, you know, there's just a lot more history that we recognize as history there. I mean, there's there's the same amount of history here. People have been living here the same amount of time, but we don't recognize it as history the same way. Um, it's It's been erased to a yeah, large extent by, yes. colon, by colonization, so.
0: Well, and I think the idea that that this probably is a perfect way to to wrap up the conversation then because as we talk about conceptions of history we also have to talk about conceptions of power which in turn lead us back to that idea of reality right like not only do the people in power get to create what is our current reality but they also then get to create what our past reality was by determining what history looks like you know so right absolutely
1: yeah. um i mean yeah like as an as an you know as an an anglophone person who lives in the united states like i am simultaneously sort of aware of how you know western civilization in quotes defines history and how you know we, we we trace back to the roman empire and and back further even than that or whatever um well at the same time i'm aware that the land that i live on is is new and young to us but had civilizations on it that we just don't include in history Right,
0: we just don't talk about it. yeah which is um, even more and dangerous.
1: and sometimes sometimes actively erase yeah um in some instances and it's just uh you know and 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 there's a there's a tension there that always exists
0: yeah and we should always be cognizant of of that even though i think uh sometimes we're not it's easier just to pretend like those things aren't there but they Mm -hmm. most definitely are so yeah yeah excellent excellent well um as usual That one kid uh, didn't get things right and he's holding up his hand because he's got something to say about my favorite film of all time. So we know this is going to go well. But here is what anonymous Amazon user had to say about In the Mouth of Madness. This movie sucked. Uh, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point.
1: There's a lot of exclamation points in this review.
0: He's very excited. Uh, I can't believe that it has such good reviews. The idea for the story is not believable at all. The special effects look very low budget. This movie was made in the nineties after a hundred years of filmmaking. Can't they do better than this? This is not even horror. This is a bad attempt at making a movie. I can't believe i made myself sit through this entire movie. I kept on hoping the movie would get better the whole time, but it never did. What's wrong with the other reviewers of this movie? He also says this movie like 12 times. And that is followed up with uh, six question marks. How can anybody think this is good? Total waste of my time. A dozen exclamation points here. I am definitely going to be more selective of any movie I pick to watch from now on. I can't take a chance of wasting two hours of my life on this trash. Um, I will also tell you uh, right after this. I assume it's right after this, but he gave a uh, five-star review to what looks like um, a Smurfs movie. So hey,
1: excellent! Yeah, awesome! Yeah, think- yeah thank Seems that seems about right. Yeah. Now I, I do th- I do think that from now on, every time I want to badmouth a movie, I'm just going to say how long it's been that we've been making movies. <laughs> yeah. Right. We've been making movies for like 150 years. So you can't do any better than this every time from now on.
0: Right. Like uh, your standard is the number of years away from the first film that was ever made, you know? Yep.
1: Yeah. No. Movies in the 30s. I mean, they could just do whatever. We don't have been making movies for like, you know, 30 years by then. So. Right, right.
0: Nah. I like that literally is moving the, goal, the goalposts. I like it. All right. Well, uh, I think that will wrap it up for our conversation of In the Mouth of Madness. Please, uh, Oren, tell us where they can find more of your stuff on the internet.
1: They can find more of my stuff at orengray.com or I am Gray on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter.
0: Awesome. Very good. Well, you can find more of my stuff at Ty Unsoul, or um, I'm always pedaling around Signal Horizon doing something. If you would like to engage uh, with us in conversation, feel free to send me an email, tyler at signalhorizon.com, or you can check out our Facebook group. The Horror Pod Class is there to help you navigate the ins and outs and complexity of horror movies. So feel free to recommend we try out a movie or come say hi to us at one of our functions. But probably the easiest way to check us out if you are in Kansas City um, is to go by Panic Fest. We will be there both for pretty much, I think, yes. the entirety of the time. So.
1: I will be there as much of the time as my health will allow if I'm still coughing by then. Good God, I hope I'm not.
0: (laughs) Well, and uh, he's an easy one to pick out because he's a tall skeleton. I am uh, pretty uh, nervous and socially awkward. So if you look for uh, uh, the guy that looks nervous and socially awkward, which is probably a lot of us at a horror movie film festival... Uh, you'll, I'll probably have a Signal Horizon t-shirt on. So we would love it if you could come by and uh, say hi and say you listen and, you know, all that yeah, kind of jazz. I mean, mo-
1: most of the bartenders will probably know who we are, too. Yes, so. yes. And then they will. They can, they can point us out if you need help.
0: And that. Uh, and they're all great, too. So make sure that you tip them really, really well. Absolutely. Okay. Stay tuned uh, here next week when we have a special guest on the show. It's Daniel Kraus. Uh, who's written a number of different novels, including the novelization of um, The Shape of Water. So we're super excited to have Daniel on, and we will be talking about the movie Survival of the Dead. So Daniel's a bit of a Romero fan and has written a couple of books about him and uh, about some of those books. So until then, glass dismissed.